Well, good morning, Temple Hills Baptist Church. Good morning. Bring our greetings to you from First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro. And as Omar has said, and as Adam has said, my name is uh, Zach Schlegel. I serve as one of the pastors at First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro. And I consider it an honor. I'm humbled to be here today to bring God's word to you, to worship alongside of you today. So thank you so much for the privilege of being here with you. I, as well, am so thankful for your pastor, Omar. Kind of a dear friend, uh, thankful for the influence that he has in my life, his example to me as a friend, as a pastor, as a father, as a, as a husband. Uh, so thank you for, uh, I'm thankful to God for, for Omar, thankful, we're thankful to God for, for you guys as well and for your witness. So uh, thank you for the privilege of being here with you this morning. Let me just ask God once more to uh, bless our time as we open up his word together. Lord, we pause and ask you for your help because we recognize that what we're reading now is not just the words of men. It's distinct from that of a newspaper or a novel or an instruction manual. It is your word. It is living and active. It is true without error. And so we thank you for the gift of your word. Your word, Father, is truth. And so we pray now that you would mercifully sanctify us by your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, writing about two centuries ago, a man named Robert Murray McShane once said that a man, what a man is on his knees, that he is, and nothing more. What a man is on his knees, that he is, and nothing more. When we hear someone's honest prayer, we actually get a glimpse into their heart. We see their priorities, their values, their concerns. And so when we turn our attention to John 17 this morning, we have the unique privilege of listening in as Jesus prays. And he's praying to God the Father hours before he goes to the cross. And so as we hear Jesus pray in John 17 this morning, we we are walking on sacred ground because we have a chance to see Jesus' heart. We walk into Jesus' prayer closet. We see his priorities. We, we see his intimacy with the Father. And so if, you're, if you have a Bible with me, let me invite you to open up with me to John 17. If you're looking at the blue Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, that should be found on page 903. And let me encourage you to follow along. We're going to try to tackle the whole chapter uh, this, this morning. And as we look at John 17, we can actually break this chapter into three sections. So if you're a note taker, we'll, we'll break this into three sections, three points. Um, first, Jesus prays for himself. That's point one. Jesus prays for himself. And that's verses one through five. Point two, Jesus prays for his followers. Jesus prays for his followers. That's verses 6 through 19. And the third point is Jesus prays for the church. Jesus prays for the church. That's verses 20 through 26. Now, as we jump into Jesus' prayer here, one question that might come up is, if Jesus is God, why does Jesus pray? And John's gospel, by the way, if you're not familiar with it, John's gospel is meant to to show us that Jesus is God, that he is the Christ, the King. He is the Son of God. 
If you've not read John's Gospel, I encourage you this afternoon to just read through it. It's 21 chapters. You can read through it in about half an hour if you just read straight through it. It's a wonderful explanation of who Jesus is. But the question is, is if, if Jesus is God, why, why does he pray? Well, to be sure, Jesus is fully God. And he's fully man. That's how God reveals Jesus to be. So he's fully God, he's fully man. And in his humanity, Jesus relies on God the Father. And he relies on God the Father through prayer. So one simple application for us through John 17 is that if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to rely upon God the Father through prayer, how much more should we? Jesus is at the crossroads of his ministry. He's hours away from being arrested, tried, and then nailed to a cross. He knows it. He knows he's hours away from this. And so he prays fervently in John 17 to prepare himself and to prepare his followers. Now, when Jesus prays, he prays perfectly. Everything he does is perfect. So when he prays, he prays perfectly. He prays according to God's will. And so that's helpful for us to remember because Jesus' prayer is the ground of our assurance today. We can be confident today because the things that he prays for in John 17, we can be absolutely certain they will come to pass. Because God the Father hears the prayer of God his Son and he will answer every one of the things he prays for in John 17. So, let's listen in as Jesus prays. First of all, he prays for himself. Look with me at John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice here in verses 1 through 5, one of the chief things that Jesus prays for is glory. Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. That's his request. Glorify your Son. Five times in these five verses, the idea of glory, glory, glory shows up. Now, if you hear Jesus pray that God the Father would glorify him, you might ask the question, well, isn't that a little bit selfish of Jesus to pray? If we heard Pastor Omar praying for God to glorify him, we would say, that ain't right. Was it selfish for Jesus to pray that? Again, if you or I or Pastor Omar prayed that way, it would be selfish. But Jesus is unique. It's not selfish for him to pray that way. The reason, notice the reason that Jesus prays for his glory is, is, is actually explained in verse 1. Father, the hours come, glorify your son, why? That, here's the reason, the son may glorify you. So he prays for God to glorify him that he may in turn glorify the father. That's his aim, that's his goal. So how is it that 
the Son glorifies the Father. Well, you read, through the, you read through the Gospel of John. That's exactly why Jesus came. He's God in the flesh showing the glory of God to the world. And so we can walk through John's Gospel chapter by chapter and see that he glorified God in his teaching. He glorified God in his miracles. He glorified God in the way that he loved. We, he glorified God the way he told the truth. And, and distinctly, when he, when he performs miracles in John's Gospel, those are called signs in John's Gospel because they show who he is in order to glorify God the Father. In chapter 11, don't forget, he raised up a dead man named Lazarus from the grave. And that, we're told, was for the glory of God. But Jesus, I think, has something else here in mind when he's talking about this. Verse 1 begins, Father, the hour has come. So when he's talking about glory, glorify me that I might glorify you, he has a distinct type of glory, idea of glory in mind. The hour refers to Jesus' death. You think of John chapter 2, he's about to, he, he performs a, uh, uh, the, where he performs a, a miracle, he turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana, and he, and he says, the hour has not come yet. And you keep reading through John's gospel, the hour has not come yet, the hour has not come yet, the hour has not come yet. He's, he's delaying it because he knows the hour refers to his coming death on the cross. How is that Glory. Well, he's going to show us. Now, remember, in the first century, the cross, we, we wear necklaces of, of a cross. We think of cross one, uh, the cross one way today. But if you're living in the first century, the cross was not jewelry. <laughs> it, was, it was like the, the gas chamber. It was the electric chair. It was, it was a symbol. The cross was a symbol of shame, of embarrassment, of dishonor, of humiliation. The cross was a punishment that was, was reserved for criminals, and not just any criminal, it was reserved for the worst of criminals. Jesus is praying for God to bring glory through the instrument that was designed to bring the greatest shame. To glorify is a word that means to make visible. It means to make visible the riches, the beauty, the, the value of something that we couldn't see before. So imagine, imagine we stood before the Grand Canyon at midnight. It's, it's pitch dark outside. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no moon to, to brighten the landscape. It's just pitch dark. We would be blind to and indifferent to the beauty and the grandeur of the Grand Canyon. Why? Because we can't see it. We're blind to it. But if you keep standing there, and, and soon enough the sun rises and shines over the entire landscape, wow, we're awestruck. That's why Jesus prays for God's glory. Left to ourselves, we are blind to the glory of the cross. We'll only see the cross as an instrument of shame and embarrassment. We'll pass over the cross as something that's foolish. We'll pass over the cross as something that's unimportant. And so by praying to God the Father to glorify Him, He's making God's plan of redemption visible that we might be saved. That's why He prays for God to glorify Him. Notice in verse 2, You have given Him authority over all flesh. Why? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
That's remarkable. God, God, gave, God the Father has given all authority to God the Son. The reason I find that remarkable is because if you or I were given authority over everyone, imagine tomorrow everybody has to do exactly what you say, no matter what. How would you use that authority? How would I use that authority? Chances are we would not use it the way that Jesus used his authority. We'd be tempted to use that authority to boss people around for our selfish purposes. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gives eternal life in verse 2. But what is eternal life? Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, when you hear the, the idea of eternal life, we, we tend to think of eternal life as the extension of time such that we live on forever and ever. But Jesus said that eternal life is more than that. Yes, it includes life that goes on forever and ever, but eternal life is, is knowing God. Not just facts about God, but knowing Him, by trusting Him, by being in a relationship where we can actually say, I know Him. I see His glory. I'm satisfied in Him. Amen. That's eternal life. Friends, we can drift through life thinking that contentment and joy and the fullness of life, well, those things are found in money and in power and in success and in the praise of man and in pleasure, as the world tells us. And soon enough, if we're not careful, we can treasure, we can pursue, we can idolize money, the praise of man, comfort, health, all these things. We can idolize them in the hopes that they will give us the life, they will give us the contentment. If I have this, then I'll be happy. If I have this, then I'll be content. But verse 3 reminds us, there is only one true God. And the only way to know this true God is by knowing and trusting Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. Jesus then close, closes this prayer for himself in verse 5, and he says this in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had, with you before the world existed. That's a helpful verse. We, we, we learn from verse 5 that Jesus existed in eternity past as the Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. He was not created. He existed in eternity past. But in the fullness of time, some 2,000 years ago, he laid aside his glory that he had in eternity past and we're told from Scripture that he took on the form of a servant, and he became a man. He took on flesh. He stepped into our shoes, so to speak. He, he became a man. Now, we have to be careful there. He didn't cease to be God. Amen. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. That's how God presents Jesus to us in the pages of Scripture. It's true, right? I don't, I don't understand how those, those things fit together, but he is fully God, and he is fully man. 
But he laid aside his glory and took on flesh in order that he might die in our place to willingly pay a debt that we could not afford to pay, the debt that our sin has incurred for us. And he knows that. In a few hours, Jesus would be nailed to a cross, and at the point of his death, he would cry out. In John 19, I'll say this. It is finished. Or as Jesus says here in verse 4, having accomplished, having finished the work that you gave me to do. One of the things about Christianity is that when we come to know Jesus, we understand that that there's there's nothing that we can add to the finished work of Christ. If we're going to receive Christ and trust him, the only way is to receive the finished work of Christ. We can't add our good works. We can't add our religion. We can't add money. We can't add anything to it. If we're to receive Christ, we have to receive it by grace. We have to receive it and accept that it is finished. There's nothing more we do. Christ died the death that we deserve to die. He lived the life that we failed to live. And so when he died, he died in our place for our sin. And on the third day, Scripture says, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and Satan and death. He rose again to prove once and for all that he had paid in full the price of our redemption. And so, friends, on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, a finished work that we cannot add anything to, God gives eternal life. Amen. That's the gospel. There's nothing more we can add to it. It's grace. So friends, if you're not yet a Christian, or if you, if you thought you were a Christian and thought that, well, Jesus does some of it and I do the rest of it, that's not Christianity. If you're not yet a Christian or you're you confused about Christianity, today is the day, friends, that we trust in Christ. I implore you, turn from your sin, trust in Christ and him alone for your salvation. I pray that you see his love, his justice, his mercy, his grace displayed at the cross. Well, after praying for himself, Jesus prays for his, his followers. And he prays that for his followers in verse 6 through 19. So let's pick it up, his prayer, in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. We'll pause there. Now, Jesus is going to make specific requests for his followers in just a moment. But here, in verses 6 through 10, he explains specifically who he's praying for. So he's letting us know whom Uh, who he has in mind when he's praying here. If if you just drop your attention down to verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. Who's the them? Well, it's those who believed Jesus is the Christ. If if you're walking with, with Jesus during his earthly ministry and believe that he's the Christ, he's the Son of God, if you're a disciple of Jesus, that's 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 who he has in mind. That's the them. 
skip down to, go back up to verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people. Now, when he says, when John refers to God's name, he's referring to God's revealed character, who God is. His name encapsulates his essence, his character, who he is. Which is interesting because Jesus came into the world as God's word. If you read the very beginning, the prologue of John, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's God. That's Jesus in, in, in the flesh. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, but he has made him known. So he is revealing God's word, as God's word, he's revealing who uh, God is. Jesus, God in the flesh, is revealing the character, the name of God the Father. Verse 6 mentions, you, the Father, gave them, the people he's praying for, to me. The Father gave them to me, Jesus says. That is what the Bible says, divine sovereignty. God the Father called them and gave them to God the Son. But keep reading verse 6. And they have kept your word. That's human responsibility. So in one verse, you have divine sovereignty and you have human responsibility. John's Gospel holds divine sovereignty and human responsibility not as at odds with each other. He holds them up right next to each other, right next to each other says both are true. I, I have no idea how they fit together. But if you're going to be a, a biblical Christian, you have to say that both those are true because that's how the Bible presents God's sovereignty and human responsibility. They're not opposed to each other. They, they just work together. Now, the world, as, John, as Jesus prays, the world is this world system that is opposed to God. The world does not trust God. The world does not obey God. In John's gospel, the world hates God. The world is in rebellion against God, and the world hates Jesus and rejects Jesus. That's why Jesus prays for those who, would camp, who, who came out of the world. Now, to be sure, God loves the world, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But here, Jesus prays specifically for his followers. Those who were there in his earthly ministry and believed in him. And he's praying specifically for them, not because he hates the world, he loves the world. But he's praying specifically for his followers because of the challenges that they are going to face in a world that hates God. Amen. And if they hate Jesus, they're going to hate his followers. And so he pray, I'm going to pray for these, these folks. Now, does Jesus' prayer for his followers 2,000 years ago apply, for, apply to us today? I would say yes. Jesus no doubt had his initial followers in mind in verses 6 through 19, but when you get to verse 20, he prays also for those who will believe in me through their word. So the first disciples lived in a unique time in salvation history. I got that. I, I fully acknowledge that. But the common factor between them and us is belief. Their trust in Jesus and the word that he spoke. So if you are a Christian today, trusting in Christ and in Christ alone, 
When you hear Jesus praying for his followers, <laughs> you should hear him praying for you. Remember, in hearing Jesus pray, we hear his heart. We hear what, what makes him tick. So what is God's heart for you? Notice Jesus speaks of the Christian as those who belong to the Father. Verse 6 again. Yours they were. Verse 9. They are yours. Yours they were. That pronoun, yours, is possessive. It's saying, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word of, of, of belonging. Yours is language of family, right? So when I got married 15 years ago, I gave myself to Katie, and Katie gave herself to me. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. I have two boys, Hudson, who's 12, Gavin, who's 10. If Hudson and Gavin are, are playing soccer and they score a goal, I may shout, that's my boy. But here's the deal. If my boys accidentally break the neighbor's window with a football, they're still my boys. <laughs> to be family, friends, to be family is to belong. To be family is to take responsibility for each other for better or for worse. And this language of family is not just your biological family. It's also a spiritual family. It's also the church family. One of the metaphors for what you're seeing right here in this building is the metaphor that the church is a family. You belong to each other. When you join a church, when you become a member of a church, if you're a member at Temple Hills Baptist Church, that's what you're doing. You're taking responsibility for each other. You're saying, I'm yours and you're, you're mine. And we're committing to each other to help each other out, to hate sin and flee from sin and to follow Jesus in good times and in bad. I'm yours and you're mine. I am my brother's keeper. And you are my keeper. That's how a church family works. And praise God for a church family. Amen. Friends, if you are a Christian this morning, this idea of belonging to God is a reminder that God chose you before the foundation of the world to be his cherished son or daughter. That's remarkable. You're not, you're not God's business partner. You're not his acquaintance. You're not just his neighbor. He says, you're mine. You're my son. You're my daughter, and I love you. But not only do you belong to God the Father, Jesus' prayer also shows us that you are God's gift to his son. Look at verse 6. Yours they were. So, in eternity past, God chose you. You belong to him. You belong to God the Father. And he says, you, Father, gave them to me. Now, it's almost Christmas time, right? Yeah? Have you ever received a gift at Christmas where you're a little, eh, a little disappointed. You're thinking in the back of your mind, I'm going to re-gift this one. <laughs> if I hear 
in Jesus' prayer that I am God the Father's gift to his Son. And then I go look at myself in the mirror. It's easy for me to assume that Jesus, as the recipient of this gift, <laughs> is like, eh. <laughs> I might want to re-gift this one. <laughs> Friends, if you're tempted to think that this morning about how God sees you, about his heart towards you, be really careful, because that's not what the Bible says. This is God's grace against everything that we sometimes feel in our flesh about how God sees us and, and views us. Let me give you a couple of passages, and there's lots of these, but I'm just going to give you two. Ephesians 1.18. God refers to us as the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, that... That, that blows our mind, but when, when Paul says what he's saying there is that when God looks at you, he sees you as his riches, the riches of his inheritance. Not just, not just his ho-hum inheritance, but the riches of his inheritance. And if you want more, let me give you one more. Uh, in, in, in Zephaniah 3.17, it says that the Lord who saves takes great delight in us to the point that he will rejoice over you with singing. As if, as, if, as if words don't suffice anymore, when he looks at you, his heart is like, mm, I just got to sing. He so delights in you that he's singing over you. Now, how is that possible? It's not because you and I deserve that. It's because of his grace. It's, who, it's because of who God is. But you, Christian are God the Father's gift to His beloved Son. You belong to God the Father, and you belong to God the Son. Now, growing up, uh, my dad had a football that was signed by every member of the Nebraska Cornhusker football team. And I think it was around the time when they won the Big 8 championship, when they were part of the Big 8 conference. And, and if you're a, a Cornhusker fan, if you grew up in Nebraska, you understand that that signed football is like the Holy Grail. So I remember eyeballing that football, and mm, that's, that's pretty cool. And I remember talking to my dad, and, and somehow he, I asked for it, he gave it to me, and I was like, ooh, he gave this to me. And so when I received this gift from my dad, I was, I was amazed, and initially I took care of it. I mean, this is, this, is, this is the Nebraska football signed by the entire Nebraska football team. But I was a kid, I was young. And eventually I lost interest in this football. And I, I think I remember, remember playing catch with the neighbors with this signed football. And, and eventually I lost it. And I have no idea to this day where it's at. Friends, praise God that Jesus is not like us. As God's gift given to him, Jesus will never lose interest in you. He'll never neglect you. Nor will he ever lose you. He will hold you fast. He's the good shepherd, John 10 says, who leads, who cares for, and keeps us to the very end. That's our assurance. That's our confidence this morning. And that's why Jesus next, in his prayer, prays for our protection. He, so we see how his heart towards us 
in, in 6 through 10, and then he turns around and prays for our protection, starting in verse 11. So look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now... I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in, him, in themselves. So during his earthly ministry, we're told that Jesus kept his disciples. That word kept, uh, that's repeated in this part of the prayer, is the word for protection, or for keeping, or guarding. So during his earthly ministry, he kept his disciples. Now his death and his departure is near. So he asks, he prays, and asks God to continue to keep them. God, I, I kept them. I protected them. Now I'm asking, I'm about to go. I'm asking you, Father, to keep them and continue to protect them. What does Jesus pray that the Father will protect them from? Praying for protection. What is on Jesus' heart that he asks God to protect them from? He asks that God would protect them from disunity. Verse 11. Holy Father, keep, there's the prayer, keep them in your name. Protect them, guard them. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. Why? That they may be one even as we are one. So notice here that Jesus does not simply pray for unity. He prays for protection that they may be or continue to be unified. I think the reason that Jesus prays this way, the reason he does not just pray for unity, but he prays for protection from disunity, the reason he prays that way is because he understands that there are dark evil forces at work in this world that strive to destroy the unity of the church. Amen. Listen, turn on the news any day of the week, and with all the strife that you see going on in the world right now, this is evidently clear. And it's only going to get harder. But friends, we should not be alarmed. We should not, be, we should not panic. Because the fact that Jesus prayed this 2,000 years ago reminds us that our day is not unique. We might be tempted to think, oh, we're facing un uncharted territory. This has never happened before. 2,000 years ago, Jesus looked and said, oh, I need to pray this. And he's been praying that ever since. So yes, it's hard. Yes, we're, we're, at a, we're in a battle. We need to recognize that. But our day is not unique. Jesus prayed for this for this church 2,000 years ago. So what is it? What is it that makes us one? What is it that makes Temple Baptist Church one? Jesus asks God, keep them in your name. Again, God's name is the revelation of God's character, who he is. That Jesus says in verse 11, he says, your name, which you have given me, clarifies the name is the truth about God as revealed by Jesus Christ. So the truth about God Revealed to us by Jesus in the Gospels is what makes Temple, Temple Hills Baptist Church one. 
It's what makes every church one. The truth about God as revealed in the Gospels by Jesus is what makes the church one. As God the Father and God his Son are one. So, we can disagree about lots of disputable matters, and there is a time and there is a place where it's good for Christians to discuss those issues. But, as D.A. Carson warns, all too often Christians fail to cherish the things that unite them with other believers, and instead they cherish the divisive things. Let me say that one more time. D.A. Carson warns that Christians all too often fail to cherish, too often Christians fail to cherish the things that unite them with other true believers, and instead they cherish the things that divide them. So let me ask you, Christian, what do you cherish? What concerns you the most? What keeps you up at night? What, what occupies your mental space? What, what occupies the, 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 the area of your heart? Pray that we, pray that this church cherishes what's most important. Listen, we share a common experience of grace a common object of faith. We share a common rejection of the world. We share a common need and love for Jesus. The things that unite us are so deep and so eternal, they transcend the things that divide. In Christ, we truly are one. And Jesus prays God protect them from the forces, the evil forces that seek to disrupt that unity. When Jesus prays that God would protect us from these sinful forces, those sinful forces include things like jealousy, selfishness, envy, an unforgiving spirit, a spiteful tongue, a spiteful keyboard that posts something online, angry isolation, I ain't talking to them, an unwillingness to admit error, an unwillingness to sympathetically learn from one another. Friends, these are, the, these are the, some of the sinful, dark forces that seek to divide us. And I'm so thankful that Jesus prays, as he does, for the protection from the things that divide. How much more should we continue to pray, even as we've sung and prayed this morning already, how much more should we pray that God would keep and protect Temple Hills Baptist Church from these evils? That if we see them, we put them to death, that we might be unified. Jesus prays for protection from disunity, but he also prays for protection from the evil one. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Notice here in verses 14 and 15 and 16 how Jesus prays about the way that we are to relate to the world. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So Jesus does not want Temple Hills Baptist Church to isolate themselves. You are not to build high walls, have a Christian fort here in Temple Hills, 
You're not to have only Christian friends and only play Christian games and only drink Christian coffee and only read Christian books and arrange your life so that you can only interact with non-Christians as minimal as possible. You shouldn't do that. Jesus did not ask that God would take you out of this world. Now, I grew up in, a, I grew up in Nebraska and I grew up in a Mennonite church uh, that had that tendency to kind of build the Christian fort and isolate themselves from the world. And when Christians, isolate, when, they, when, they, when Christians isolate themselves from the world in unbiblical ways, they often develop strange and unbiblical definitions of what is worldly. Amen. Why are they doing that? Why do they say that's worldly? Well, I can't tell you why. It's just weird. It's not in the text. It's not in the Bible. It's just that's what they came up with. So we shouldn't isolate from the world for unbiblical reasons. Because Jesus did not pray that God would take us out of this world. But, before we swing too far to the other side of the other extreme, neither should the church assimilate with the world. In verse 14 and in verse 16, twice, he says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So we are not to isolate ourselves from the world, nor are we to assimilate ourselves with the world. We are to be distinct from the world as Jesus was distinct. So what are we, how, how are we supposed to relate with the world then? Well, that's why he prays. Father, keep them from the evil one. Satan, church, listen, Satan is a liar. John 8, 44, he's the, he's the father of all lies. And, and whenever he talks to you, whenever he whispers in your ear, he's lying to you. And he wants to deceive us about God. He wants to deceive us about ourselves. He wants to deceive you about you. He wants to deceive you about the world that you live in. He wants to deceive you about what's true. And if he can get us to believe a lie, then he can discourage us. He can tempt us. And he can redirect us away from God's path of righteousness into a path that leads to hell. Now, one of Satan's tools to deceive us is the hatred of this world. The hatred of the world that's mentioned in verse 14. Listen, if, if enough people join in and agree with the lie of Satan, if enough people in this world agree with the lie, it's not long until sin begins to look normal and righteousness begins to look strange. And it's then that the church feels the pressure from this world to conform. The world says, you got to do this, you got to do this, this is right, this is wrong. And we all agree. And if you don't get in line, we're going to hate you, we're going to persecute you. And the church feels that pressure to get in line, to conform, or else. So Jesus asked God to protect his people from the deception, the temptation, and the discouragement of the evil one. You see it? Okay, if he prays that God would protect us from the evil one, then how? How, are we, how? how is God going to protect us from falling into the ditch of isolation or, or falling into the other ditch of assimilation? How are we to, how do we, it feels like a tightrope sometimes. How can we walk this road? How is God going to protect us? Well, he answers that in verse 17. Here's how. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that 
that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus asked God to protect them from disunity, and he also asked God that they would, he would protect the church from the evil one. Now he prays for our sanctification. To sanctify is a word that means to set apart for God's purposes. The means, the instrument, the tool that God uses to set us apart is God's word. It's the Bible. Sanctify, he says in verse 17, sanctify them in, or that preposition can be translated as by, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So what, what are they set apart to do? God, he's praying God set them apart by your word. What is he praying that God would set them apart to do? Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We don't isolate from the world. We don't assimilate with the world. We are sent into the world as God the Father sent Jesus into the world. Now, what is it that Jesus came to do? In John 18, verse 37, Jesus says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So, Jesus says that he came to bear witness to the truth about God, to bear witness to the truth about sin, to bear witness to the truth about redemption that is through Christ, to bear witness to the, the truth about our need to trust in Him. Now, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Okay, if you are a Christian this morning, that is what you are set apart to do. You are sent by Jesus. You are set apart by God's word, and you are sent by Jesus into this world to bear witness about the truth, to bear witness about the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Habakkuk 2.14 prophesies this, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Now, when you look around Temple Hills, do you see the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord? Everyone agreeing and giving praise to God because they see the glory of God. Do you see that? You may not see it now, but it's prophesied. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's awesome. But how is God's plan going to be accomplished? How is the earth going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What is God's plan for bringing about the spread of the gospel? You ready? Look around you. That's his plan. The church is God's plan to go and make disciples here in Temple Hills, in Maryland, and around the world. You, you can read through the scriptures. There is no plan B. That's his plan. Amen. 
That is the great commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It is to go and make disciples. He's saying to us, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, in, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That's what you are here to do. And God will use this church in Temple Hills to do that so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now, is that overwhelming? Yes. And that's why Jesus prays for the church. Point number three, Jesus prays for the church. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So Jesus prays not only for his initial disciples, his initial followers, but also, as we see here in verse 20, for those who will believe. In other words, for us, 2,000 years later, for us, and for a second time, he prays for our unity. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one. That you, could, you could kind of insert your church name in there. That, that Temple Hills Baptist Church may be one. Verse 22. That they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. You see what Jesus is praying for? So what is the mindset that is assumed that needs to be present in Temple Hills Baptist Church for this to happen? To foster this type of unity that Jesus is praying for? Well, look again at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now what's the glory that... that Jesus is talking about. I think the glory that he's talking about in verse 22 is the same glory that we saw, first of all, in verse 1. It's the glory of the cross. It's what Paul said in Philippians 2, 5-11, through that Jesus took the form of a servant and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Not just any death, but death on a cross. And Paul goes on to say, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name, at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glory that he said I gave to the church, the glory he's talking about here is the way of the cross. Denying ourselves, putting the needs of others first, being a servant as Jesus became a servant. That's the mindset that is assumed among us that we might have the unity that he prays for. Do you think of glory that way? Do you think of glory as the way that Jesus prays for glory? I don't. But it's so helpful because he's redefining glory for us. He's, and I pray that God opens our eyes to see that glory is what Jesus says it is. 
Friends, the next time that you let go of bitterness, the next time that you bear up with someone who's difficult to love, the next time you forgive someone in this church, that's your glory. Proverbs 19.11 It is His glory to overlook an offense. (laughs) You think of glory that way? When you're serving your spouse this week, when you're caring for your kids, when you're changing the diaper this week, when your service goes unnoticed at work, when your service goes unnoticed at this church and no one thanks you for it, when you humble yourself, don't think of that as your penalty. Think of that as your glory. The world says that one's value is determined by your performance and by how you compare with other people. And it puts us, when we find our value based on our performance, it puts us in competition and it results in conflict. That's why the world's in conflict. Our unity is then destroyed. Part of the reason that Jesus prays for this unity is that the world would know that God, look at the end of verse 23, loved them. He prays this, that the world would know that God loved them, that's the church, even as you loved me. In, in, chapter, in John 15, verse 9, John tells, that, tells us that Jesus loves us as the Father loved Jesus. Here, we learn that God the Father loves us as He loves His Son. That's remarkable. When we know that we are fully loved by God, when we know that when God looks at us and He sees we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was baptized, He came up with the water? God the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. When we actually hear God say to us, this is my beloved daughter, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, and we're like, really? That's what He thinks about me? It changes our life. We no longer need to prove ourselves. We no longer need to compare ourselves with others. We no longer need to compete with others. All that need to compete and and compare vanishes. Experiencing God's love helps us to see that true glory is the way of the cross. Servants who live for God's glory and for the good of others, people the, the world overlooks will be vindicated. So what does this humble, servant-hearted love produce? It produces unity, the unity that Jesus prays for. Jesus gives this strange glory, verse 22, that they may be one. Friends, the goal of our unity, the goal of the unity at, at Temple Hills Baptist Church is not so that you can sit down around a campfire this evening and hold hands and feel warm and fuzzy. It's a much more important reason. The reason that the unity in this church is crucial, that it's worth fighting for, that it's worth laboring for, that it's worth humbling ourselves for, the reason it's important is for the glory of God. If our unity is meant to reflect how God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are one, then the church misrepresents God when they're divided. Does that make sense? 
as an example of this, when, when the church in Corinth, when the church in Corinth was quarreling, one group was saying, well, I'm of Paul. Another group was saying, well, I'm of Apollos. Another group was saying, well, I'm of Cephas. Paul wrote them a letter, 1 Corinthians, and he reproved them, and his reproof was simple. Is Christ divided? You're divided. Is Christ divided? Christ is not divided. Why are you divided? Why are you saying, I'm of a Paul, I'm of Paul, I'm of a Cephas? Christ is not divided. Why are you divided? But another reason, other than the glory of God, another reason that the unity of Temple Hills Baptist Church is important is because of your witness. In verse 21, Jesus prays for the unity in the church so that the world may believe that God sent him. The word of the gospel is proclaimed with your mouths, with my mouth. We, we speak the words of the gospel in verse 20. But then a unified church, a loving church, adorns that gospel in verse 21 so that the world may believe that Jesus is sent from God the Father as a Savior of the world. You've got to have both gospel proclamation and a unified loving church. Those things go together. That's God's plan of evangelism for the church. Let's close by looking at verses 24 through 26. Jesus prays in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Once again, Jesus prays concerning his glory. Specifically, that those who trusted in Christ, verse 24, may be with me where I am to see my glory. If you're wondering, friends, that is heaven. To be with Jesus and to see his all-satisfying, joy-giving, breathtaking glory. This glory, we, we now see, but we see it dimly in the pages of Scripture as, we, as God reveals himself to us. But soon, one day, very near, we will enjoy his glory face to face with full, unhindered enjoyment. Temple of Baptist Church, imagine that we stopped everything that we're doing right now. And imagine that we stopped to listen. Because somebody in that room over there was talking. Who's talking? So we all quiet down and we listen. And we realize the person in that room is not just talking, they're praying. And we realize it's not just any person, it's Jesus in that room praying. Can you imagine how it would change things if you realize as you listen to him pray that Jesus was praying for you by name? That he was praying for Temple Hills Baptist Church by name. Well, we don't have to imagine it. He did. And John 17 lets us in on that awesome, sacred moment. But it's not just that Jesus prayed, past tense. Right now, 
Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And guess what he's doing? He's interceding. He's praying right now. Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to intercede, to pray for them, for us. Jesus prays. Prayed and he's praying right now for our protection from disunity, for our protection from the evil one, and for our sanctification. Jesus prays for our unity to resound to his glory. He prays for our witness to a watching world, and he prays for God to bring us all the way home that we may be with him and see his glory face to face. And friends, when Jesus prays, God answers. God is faithful. He is our hope. He is our glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John 17. We thank you for the privilege of listening in to Jesus in his prayer closet. We thank you for his heart. We thank you for uh, the unity that he has enjoyed with you and you and your son have enjoyed with the Spirit and that you love us the same way that you love the Son. Father, we confess there are many things that Jesus prayed that we don't fully understand or that if we do understand, we don't fully believe or rest in. And we pray that, that even after we leave this place, that your Holy Spirit would help us to believe what Jesus prayed. And we ask that you would be faithful to accomplish everything that Jesus prayed for. Lord, I pray for Temple Hills Baptist Church that this would be a place that is, that, 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 that the, the members of this church would love one another, bear up with one another, care for one another, forgive one another, mm-hmm. and love one another as you have loved them. And I pray that the world would know that they are your disciples by their love for one another. I pray that they'd be faithful to share the gospel with their neighbors, family members, co-workers, both here locally and around the world. And Lord, I pray that part of the thing that adorns their gospel proclamation would be their love for one another. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to grow them in love with you, love for one another, and in their unity together as a church family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.